This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 49. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Uh, Today we're discussing the sixth Doctor regeneration story, The Caves of Androzani. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So let's get uh, right to the the sound of the trailer for uh, The Caves of Androzani. The core of this planet is superheated primeval mud. When its orbit takes it close to Androzani Major, the gravitational pull... Oh, I get the picture. Mud baths for everyone. All I understand is you're supposed to be trained soldiers. And yet one renegade and a handful of mindless androids has been dancing rings around you for six months. (laughs) Under emergency regulations, Anyone caught supplying arms to the android rebels faces summary execution. Fire! Your sense of humor will be the death of you, Doctor. You see, I'm a bit out of practice with manual landing, so if I were you, I'd find something firm to hang on to. I'll murder you when I get in there, Doctor! That's the uh, sound of the trailer uh, set to the music from the new Who. <laughs> I was gonna just gonna say that this is not an original uh, trailer. <laughs> that, that's the theme of the eleventh we heard there. Exactly. So, uh, just a little behind the scenes. What I generally do is when I'm looking for the for a trailer for uh, classic episodes, because all the trailers for the new episodes are all online. That the BBC made them, yeah. and they were it's, they were in the internet era. But all the classic ones, they're either I look on YouTube and I tr- there's there's several to choose from usually, but uh, there's usually user one from the pulled from a DVD or I find a fan made mm-hmm. one. I think this was a fan made trailer, and there's some really good yeah. ones out mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah, they they would they obviously wouldn't have had trailers at the time, because um, it was of course by the time we get to Peter Davidson, they're starting to realize, hey, people have VCRs and they want to be able to watch these old <laughs> series, but they still wouldn't have had trailers for them. Right. Right. You know, exactly. So, uh, it, yeah, the, the, I mean, at the most at the time, there might have been like a coming next time, but I don't even think that was all that common no. back then. Not from my recollection. No. I, I don't think there would have been, yeah. um, if we haven't seen them, you know, watching the replays, they probably didn't have them. Yeah. Yeah. They, they had, what they did have was those interstitials on the BBC where they'd show you a turning globe and an announcer would come on and say, and now on Doctor Who, the Doctor has a mysterious adventure on a mysterious planet, and then they'd go <laughs> into like the new show. Kind of like they still do today. They're a little bit, little bit more advanced, but they still kind of do the same thing on the BBC today. Yeah, they get like a, a DJ. Yeah, they get like a DJ in between uh, shows. I find that funny. Sometimes I'll I'll, I'll find a, a show online, and, and the, they have the credits in, and over the credits, they have like a DJ style and out live yeah. announcer sort of thing. Well, they're. There's a there's an episode of the Seventh Doctor where we'll talk about him in the next week, um, where he's back in 1963 and 
his companion turns on the TV. And of course, the TV, an old TV takes a long time to warm up. She gets impatient. And coming up next on BBC, the new science fiction adventure series, Click. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> little Meta there. So... Yep. So uh, what what time are we talking about? When does this uh, episode air? It's uh, it, it aired in um, the beginning of March of 1984. So that's about the mm-hmm. time frame that we're reaching with this doctor, uh, the end of the sixth doctor's time. So um, which, fifth, which fifth is, doctor. Uh, fifth, sorry, fifth doctor. I'm getting my fifths and sixths and sevenths mixed. Um, the, the fifth doctor. So was now the, here's a question. Were, were these airing around at the same time in the U.S. or was there a lag? Um, I think there was a lag, but it wasn't a big one. Yeah. Um, we had we had had the Tom Bakers uh, already airing and uh, widely in the U.S. And there was something of a lag with those, but it was so popular that it caught up pretty quickly in my yeah. memory because I remember watching this. Uh, when it first aired, and it was, it, it, if there was a lag, it wasn't a big one. Okay. Yeah, you, I was, I was just sitting here. I was thinking about this too last night. Um, nineteen eighty four is about kind of when I started watching Doctor Who on our local public broadcasting station. Um, shout out to Prairie Public in North Dakota, where I was living <laughs> at the time. Um, and when we got into the late eighties where the seventh doctor started airing in 1987, I want to say it was 1988 when they first brought over the seventh doctor episode. So it might've been a year lag. Okay. Which, mm-hmm. um, understandable. I, I don't know, like Jimmy, when you were watching it, but where the way our public television station did it, we had the movie format mm-hmm. where they would, they would cut the, so they would cut the cliffhangers uh-huh. and splice oh, to the no. next episode. So it would be like, like for example, this was a hundred, you know, a hundred minute long four part episode. So this would oh, be yeah, a hundred minute long movie. Okay. And yeah, every they week they would show in these movies. Where I was watching. Okay. Yeah, we we would we would see it as all every serial would be one episode, and that's oh, how wow. I thought it was originally aired. That would because be a that's long all I ever episode. knew. Then of course <laughs> you get to the VCR tape. Yeah, like I said, this would have been you know when I first watched this, this would have been um, you know a hundred minute, you know hour and a half to hour forty minute long episode. Wow. So, mm. yeah, see, the, the thing, the reason I ask is as, because again, uh, you know, as I'll repeat, uh, I, I was not a Doctor Who watcher as a kid, but I was aware of it. I mean, I, I would go to mm-hmm. science fiction conventions and I'd see guys mm-hmm. walking around with Tom Baker scarves and that sort of thing. And so this was, but like, I was seeing, I rec- you know, for me, the only doctor that I recall is Tom Baker. I mean, that was the only doctor from, from, from my childhood. I don't remember any of the others. Um, and, and I, I, I just, I, I thought that the, that Tom Baker was the doctor well into the eighties, like into, you know, 84, 85, 86. So that's why I was wondering if there was a delay or just, he just remained so popular that people just continued. Well, were cosplaying him and, and, and he was in, well, they, in popular they media. Would also, they would also go back. So, you know, we, we would watch, you know, they'd kind of work through a, a certain series of episodes. Again, this is how I saw it. Yeah. They'd work through a certain series of serials and then they would jump into another doctor and then they'd kind of work back and forth, you know, kind oh, of okay. as they could, as they could contract for the different episodes. You know, of course, this was in, contracting with BBC Worldwide to get these episodes. Okay. In, in my viewing experience, they started with Tom Baker and went all the way through forward okay. uh, and they didn't, they didn't jump around. Um, so I only saw a tiny bit of just a few seconds of John Pertwee 
as the doctor at the beginning of Robot, um, which was the first Tom Baker episode. But Tom Baker stayed with the part for seven years, which is way longer than anybody else had. And he was so popular that even when Peter Davison uh, became the doctor, he was for a long time overshadowed by Tom Baker. And mm-hmm. I think really all of the classic doctors after Tom Baker were overshadowed by by Tom Baker. It wasn't right. until New Who that the doctors really kind of got out from under the shadow of Tom Baker. And he's still the most famous. If you mm-hmm. say Doctor Who to somebody uh, who's not a, a regular watcher of the series, odds are they're going to think guy with a long scarf. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, especially those who aren't millennials or, you know, maybe saw it when they were younger. Yes. Of course, you know, for for those who are maybe millennials who are familiar with new who it's going to be David Tennant. Most likely. Or whoever the most recent is. Right, right, right. Well, so this was uh, this was, as you said, Jimmy, this is the fifth doctor, uh, Peter Davison, his last episodes. uh, Mm -hmm. It was the third of his three seasons. um, And in this uh at this point, his companion was Perry. Uh, we, yeah. I, th- I think we mentioned her last time or, or in, a, in a recent episode of Secrets of Doctor Who um, that she was the, the his American companion played right. by a British <laughs> actress, right? Yeah. So yes. the thing with Perry is Doctor, they brought they created the character of Perry because the producer at the time, John Nathan Turner, had made this deal uh, and had realized that, you know, the show is very popular internationally and there was this deal to have it being played on American television. And they wanted to to raise the popularity of the show in America. Um, and they thought, well, let's create an American companion for audience identification and, you know, to acknowledge this other country that we're getting ratings from. And so uh, they said, let's make an American companion and let's get an American citizen to play the part. And they did. Nicola Bryant was an American citizen because she was a British woman married to an American man. And <laughs> but uh, and so they introduced her just in the story right before this. Um, this is her second adventure with the doctor. The other was her introduction um and so we're still getting to know this character and that's one of the things that will be very interesting at the end when the doctor regenerates and he regenerates for the first time deliberately to save somebody this is a first and it's somebody he's only just met um but perry the nicola bryant's accent is really not a good american accent we hear that kind of at the beginning of this episode yes yeah, that's the exact line. They um, they they la- they land on Androzani Minor in a place where a spaceship is set down and its rockets have fused the sand into glass. But she's talking about how someone has ha- has made some gloss, and yeah. it, instantly, if you are, have an American ear, it's like, okay, this is not an American actor, uh, unless Correct. you're unless you're a Kennedy, but. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Who, who have an accent all their own. Um, yeah. yeah, she she also, I, I caught her periodically throughout the episode referring to, to Peter Davison as doctor, 
you know, with a non-rotic accent dropping the R on the end of doctor. And that's another thing you only get in, in certain parts of America. It's not standard American. Yeah. I didn't hear that at all because, because I'm I'm from Boston is one of them. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and and she's supposed to be, I don't think they really specify, but I kind of get the impression where she's supposed to be someplace like California or something like that. Right. Right. They may have even mentioned it. That's my impression too, but I don't know for sure where she's supposed to be from. Yeah. Her broadest accent, you might've heard it in the trailer like when she's like mud baths for er- for everyone i mean there was such a broad american accent in there that just it just oh i just <laughs> i just looked it up they uh they they say that she's from baltimore baltimore oh that's totally not a baltimore TARDIS. accent <laughs> so it's, it, according according to the tardis wikia which is a great resource for yeah. the tardis data oh, yeah. core is a great resource for anything doctor who they say she's from baltimore and yeah, that she, she I, you should, know, at best, she should she's sound got, southern, if anything. Yeah. In that, in I mean, at, at best, her accent, when she actually does it right, sounds kind of Midwestern blah, you know, the typical <laughs> just bland Midwestern. But right. uh, when she yeah. first introduced, uh, I know Jimmy knows this, uh, the first scene we see of her, she's out on a boat on the ocean and she's going to go swim to shore and uh, very revealing shots in a bikini. Yes. They, they very <laughs> emphasize certain aspects of it. I oh, guess gosh. later I saw an interview of her later. She was pretty upset with how that was filmed. She would have refused the scene because it was especially for that time, early 80s, that was pretty racy. That's funny. Pre Bay pre Baywatch. <laughs> yeah. But now that we've talked about Perry a little bit, let's talk about uh Peter Davison a yes. little mm-hmm. bit because he's he's a you know, he's a very interesting doctor. He's one of my favorites. Um yeah. Oh, yeah. and uh, each doctor is sort of a reaction is cast as a reaction to the previous doctor. And it's kind of like Star Trek movies. You know, you have a bad one, you have a good one, you have a bad one, you have a good one. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's something like that with the doctor. You have a prickly one, you have a friendly one, you have a prickly one, you have a friendly one. Um, in this case, Peter Davison was cast in response to Tom Baker, who was, he he had a lot of alienness to him. He's often credited as the most alien of the original classic doctors. And he's very, he, but he, he's whimsical. He can be brusque, but he can also be childlike. And he had a lot of humor. And with, um, with introducing Peter Davison, they went much more normal. He, he's the youngest guy to ever play the doctor. So he has a very youthful vibe, but he also is a very normal guy. He's mm-hmm. very mild mannered compared to the other doctors. He is not arrogant. He often is more vulnerable than other doctors who would often have the have these much more mysterious reserves of answers to things, Mm. you know, and they'd show off their knowledge. And Peter Davison is much humbler and more of a problem solver and uh, is more collaborative with his companions. And uh, I I think it makes for a nice contrast. He's not quite my favorite doctor, who's still, I think, Patrick Troughton. But in terms of uh, but in terms of just being a normal, decent human being, mm-hmm. I think he's he's aces. I mean, he's great. Yeah. And he's kind of the pattern for a lot of for several of the new who doctors. Certainly, right. he's influential on David Tennant very directly and also Matt Smith, although Matt Smith's doc, both of them are more arrogant. 
uh, especially mm-hmm. Matt Smith and Peter Davison, but they're both kind of the doctor as your good boyfriend, you know, for the yeah. female companion model. <laughs> so, well, uh, you know, it's one thing you see in this episode, you get, see one of uh, Peter Davidson's calling cards, if you will, is he was very, he would be very snarky. You know, he'd mm-hmm. throw out kind of those little snarky comments, but then you get called on and he kind of almost look abashed. Yeah. Or, you know, like, ooh, I went too far. You know? Yeah, and his companions would stand up to him. Uh, we, we, a companion that we saw in the previous um, regeneration story, Tegan Javanka, uh, the Australian stewardess companion, she was she would totally stand up to the doctor and chew him oh, yes. out on oh, occasion. Yes. Mm. So he had a lot of respect for her for it too. You could yeah. tell. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd call her brave heart and everything, and really encourage her. And yet she, yeah, he's do something wrong, and she'd be right there in his face. And you, Jimmy, you mentioned he was the young, he was the youngest at the time, right? My, I think both yes. Matt Smith and David Tennant were younger when they began. He was Peter Davison was right. thirty when he right. took the role. Uh, and, and, and interesting and this trivia was a departure. Yeah, this was a departure because I mean the doctor had always been a mature man, and you even think of doctors as being mature men, right? Uh, not you did then, not today. Now today, you can be a twenty-two-year-old, you know, Doogie Hauser physician <laughs> of either gender. But back right. then, doctors were the stereotypical doctor was a mature man, and here's this really young guy. Okay. So um, to kind of jump into the episodes, it's the itself. Um, we we have the doctor and Perry landing on this planet called Andrazani Minor. Uh, and they end up in a um, literal underground war, <laughs> uh, rebels versus uh, a, a federal force based on a different planet, Andrazani Major, a, a companion planet. So these planets are next to each other. Um, and, I like the twin planet thing. Yes. Yeah. Which is really what we and our moon are. But some of the people of the Ast- International Astronomical Union are in denial about that. But Earth and the moon are really a twin planet. <laughs> Okay, um, we will not. Inc- if it's, we'll, if we it's won't. big, if it's big enough to be round and it's not big enough to glow, it's a planet. So that moon <coughs> is a planet. <coughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, let's let's not get into controversial political topics on this uh, show. <laughs> so, um, so, and the war is over this uh, this substance. This. Uh, Drug or spectrox. spectrox that extends life indefinitely, which of course would cause war. Um, and we'll we'll get into all the the machinations around it. Um, so the the Doctor and Perry they they land on on uh, spe- on I was going to say Spectrox Andrazani Minor. They notice that a ship had been there before them and that it had left these tracks. And it um, the Doctor is very curious about this, and they follow it to um, well. They, at first, they say caves because that's the title of the show. But then he says they're blowholes. But of course, blow, right. blowholes of Andrazani would be a terrible <laughs> episode title. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't it? Yes. At best, it would conjure images of whaling. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so they tell us they're caves at first, and then explain later that they're blowholes uh, for uh, mud bursts, which is an interesting. Yeah. Phenomenon. So it's not just it's not lava and magma, but that the center of the planet is this, uh, as the doctor calls it, primeval mud, superheated, Superheated. apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That occasionally comes to the surface 
due to the tidal forces of the of Androzani Major nearby. Mm-hmm. And and that's uh, that's very believable. I, I don't recall if they say it's superheated. I, um, it doesn't. It certainly isn't appearing that by the time it gets to the surface because well, it doesn't right. seem to burn anybody. Well, well except for Jack. The, Jack. Okay. okay. Yeah. He was he was um, caught out inside of a. Well, we'll talk about that. But yeah, he was yeah. burned by the mud. So yeah. In what I love about it though is this is a real phenomenon. I mean, there are such things as mud volcanoes. And in fact, <clears throat> there are mud volcanoes within 100 miles of where I live. Uh, oh. in, here in Southern California, uh, if you drive from San Diego County out into Imperial County, which is the lowest spot in the continental United States, it's below sea level, uh, there is a body of water called the Salton Sea. And it is America's equivalent of the Dead Sea. It's below sea level. It's very saline. All the runoff water goes there. It also smells terrible, just like the Dead Sea. Mm. Uh, but it's in the middle of a geothermal pocket. And so they have mud pits and mud volcanoes uh, at the Salton Sea. And I've driven out and seen them and uh, walked around on them. They, they're not, the mud volcanoes are not very tall, so they get up to be about six or eight feet tall at most, but they're constantly bubbling, and you can hear them uh, from a distance because they have uh, carbon dioxide bubbling up through the liquid mud, and they have these bubbles of mud that come up and burst and pop, and they're cool to the touch. You know, they're not hot, hmm. um, but uh, they're really cool. And when you walk around on the mud plain, it's number one, it looks like an alien planet because it's got alkali salts all over the top of it. So it looks kind of like snow, uh, even though it's not. But then you press your feet in it and they go down and it's mud. And it's really a cool alien environment that you can visit right here on Earth. And so mm -hmm. I just totally clicked with the mud, <laughs> with the mud, you know, uh, volcanism on Androzani Minor. Well, they should have filmed uh, the the uh, establishing shot uh, there by the Salton Sea because uh, from what the the uh, the, the uh, the stock footage they used here was of uh, Valley of the Monuments in Arizona, <laughs> which is <Yes. laughs> totally different. Uh, but um, I wanted to mention uh, that Androzani, for the fans of New Who, uh, shows up in uh, the time of the 11th Doctor. Uh, it's mentioned, in fact, a couple times. So uh, if people remember the Christmas adventure, the Doctor, the Widow in the Wardrobe, which was a takeoff on the, the yeah. line, the Witch in the Wardrobe, um, where the Doctor, uh, they, they, they climbed through a big box into another world. Um, mm -hmm. the trees, the technology, and the soldiers all come from Androzani Major. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I and, didn't remember that. Yep. And then um, in the, uh, let's see, in the name of the Doctor, an episode that we'll be talking about, uh, well, no, no, we're not the name of the Doctor. I'm thinking of the, of the day of the Doctor. All these of the Doctor episodes that came out around the same time confused me with their names. But in the episode, the name of the Doctor, the doctor was said to have died on Androzani Minor, which right. he does. Spoilers. We're going to see that. Yeah. <laughs> after, after the great intelligence had entered the doctor's time stream. So not just regenerated, but died um, when the great mm. intelligence entered the time, doctor's time stream. And presumably the fifth doctor was saved by a version of Clara Oswald when she was, you know, split into many bits and 
uh, yeah. traveled through the oh, Doctor's yeah. time stream. So those mm-hmm. were two mentions of Andrazani, the, the two planets in uh, New Who. Just uh, thought I'd throw those out there. So um, cool. they uh, climbed in as they're journeying into the uh, into the blowholes of Andrazani. Uh, the the Doctor mentions at one point that he tried keeping a diary once, but the problem with time travel is no, one never seems to find the time. I liked that. That line that was a good one, and and we've seen the diary before. It's a five hundred year diary. It shows up every once in a while. Right, a, the doctor will have a diary of some sort, and we get a key explanation that fans of yeah. the fifth doctor uh, probably were looking for for three seasons and and got right before the end, which is why the celery in his lapel, uh, mm-hmm. and he explains he's allergic to certain gases, and then in the presence the celery turns purple, and then Perry asks him, "Then what do you do then?" Well, I eat the celery. Should at least clean his teeth. Exactly. Uh, With no explanation why no other doctor ever wears the celery, but that doctor decided that that was important. Yeah, and it may be because, you know, of the physiological changes with regeneration, fans have said, okay, well, this incarnation is allergic to the gases, but other other incarnations may have different allergies. You know, new mouth, new rules. (laughs) Okay, okay. That's that's interesting. So uh, more of an allergy as opposed to a poison. I get that. Um, so then we get this, uh, we're introduced to this sort of confusing to me, geopolitical situation that's going on. And I, I, it took me a bit. It's really complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It it took me a bit to figure it out. So there's a, uh, this, this underground war on this planet between, uh, the forces of the government and this, uh, madman with an army of androids who's taken over the production of this vital chemical called Spetrox. Where, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the general in charge of the army is taking his orders not from the government, but from this wealthy mining magnet um, who's funding the war. And then we find, uh, find out that he's also funding the rebellion uh, by sending uh, gunrunners. Um, yeah, he's trading. He's trading. He's, he's going... To using gun runners to trade guns with the madman, right? Um, to get Spectrox, right? Um, so while while limiting the supply due to the war, th- thus raising the price, and I think that was a right. key element of it. Um, and 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 we get hints of how ruthless and devious um, this uh, this guy is by you know we we we're told this anecdote of a rebellion or some type of strike at an at a at a plant uh, of a different, like a copper mine. And then later on we find it, Oh, there was an explosion there. That's surprising. I can't imagine yeah. why. Um, so. This, this is something, and it, it's quite complex. And I actually, even though it's a little difficult to follow all the betrayals that go on, I mean, this mm-hmm. is, this is like, um, it's kind of like a Spanish revenge play from Shakespeare's day where you have these, you know, this kind of tense, tensely balanced, you know, system of alliances. And then you have loads of betrayal happening and that plays out here. And I actually, even though it's a little hard to follow, uh, I like that. I think mm-hmm. that it's it it's a dark, realistic vision because you do have situations in real life where you have these Machiavellian Plots yep. and of course Machiavellian plots, being as complex as they are, tend to be unstable and fall apart at some point. Right. And so we right. see that. Um, one of the things that is happening here is this. So this story is written by Robert Holmes, 
And Robert Holmes is considered one of the best Doctor Who writers of all time. He, he's, he's not 100%. Some of his episodes, especially early on, are not great. But uh, he produced multiple classic Doctor Who stories, classic in the quality sense. And one of he has a very cynical view and a kind of dark view. And we see both of that here. Also, he likes exploring corporate culture and dehumanization and bureaucracy. And we see that in multiple Bob Holmes stories. And we certainly see that here. One of the things I liked about this, though, is even though he's dealing with the dark side of government and the dark side of capitalism and uh, so forth, is he doesn't get preachy about it. He just shows it. And that's so different than some of what we got in the Peter Capaldi era, where we would see like episodes like Oxygen that have the dark side of corporatism. But Peter Capaldi has to have an anti-capitalism speech in it just to get preachy about it, rather than just showing us the, it and allowing us to draw our own conclusions. And I think that's a superior aspect of the writing. Mm-hmm in Bob Holmes's time compared to now it's the politics are more subtle and you're allowed to draw your own conclusions instead of having a conclusion shoved down your throat by the writers. That's a good point. With the exception though, of the, uh, the, the billionaire turning to the camera and telling his plot, Oh, what shall I do about this? You know, kind of (laughs) snidely whiplash (laughs) style, you know? So I well, I read an there anecdote. There are good aspects to the writing now too. <laughs> well, I, I read an anecdote that that was apparently the result of a, a mistaken impression by the actor John Normington, who who thought that those were supposed to be asides to the camera. Uh, oh, and then the, <laughs> that's funny. Then the director decided to keep them in because he thought that they were uh, they ramped up the dramatic tension. So uh, oh very wow, that's awesome. <laughs> That's like that character on the Goon Show, Blue Bottle, where the actor characteristically reads his own stage directions. Blue Bottle enters stage left. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's it was it sort of reminds me of uh, House of Cards, where uh, Frank Underwood uh, occasionally addresses the uh, the viewer. Francis exactly. Urquhart. This is the British show. With that, that was an element of the British show. Yeah, no, no. Yes, it was. But I was just saying it's not Frank, whoever. It's oh. Francis Urquhart. We're doing oh. British television here. Oh, right, right. Yes. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, so the the Doctor and Perry are exposed to the raw Spectrox, which we'll find out later um, is toxic in its raw form, um, and then they stumble upon a weapons cache that the gun runners are running, and then bad luck, they're found at the same time by uh, the uh, federal forces who assume that they're gun runners um, and they're taken into custody. And they also stumble in this camp onto a die, uh, meaning part of a pair of dice. And Bob Holmes or whoever is responsible for this line totally blows their geek cred by having Peter Davison say, this dice is still warm. (laughs) No, 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 no. Anyone who's ever played D&D knows this die is still warm. Um, That's a good one. Uh, That's uh, a key key element. Uh, So they're taken into custody. Um, The general consults with the uh, Androzani major businessman, Trow Morgus, who tells the general to execute them as gun runners. Um, At the same time, uh, Sherak, uh, Sherak Jack, Sherak Jack. Jack. (sighs) 
<laughs> you can just call him Jack. I'm going to call him Jack Everybody from now on does. because it'll be easier. Uh, he's been monitoring the communications. And of course, I mean, it, it, evoking uh, Phantom of the Opera and some of these other things, yeah. he, he, he becomes enamored this of, and he's got this mask on, but he becomes enamored of Perry's beauty and decides that um, he's going to rescue her. Um, yeah, there's this total Phantom of the Opera, Beauty and the Beast relationship here between Shara's Jack and Perry. Um, and you're right, he is he is in a mask, and it and this is I think a flaw in the uh, in the costume design because the mask is weirdly colored. I mean, yeah. it's not just a mask that fits over his head. It's got this black and white pattern that's asymmetrical, and it's not clear what the purpose of that is. Mm -hmm. um, also, frankly, the mask looks like it's a piece of bondage gear. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that's probably intentional um, and is suggestive of, you know, some kind of deviancy on Jack's part. Obviously, he has a, he has an unhealthy love and attraction for beauty and obsession with it, uh, mm -hmm. which is what's fueling his relationship with Perry. That was my note. Uh, Jack, creepy bondage stalker. I mean, this guy is yeah. just, just very strange <laughs> from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and just to make it clear, Jack is the madman we talked about earlier who has the androids and he's trading Spectrox with the gun runners for guns to fuel his android rebellion. Right, mm -hmm. right. He also, uh, and this is ironic because the guns are coming from Morgus, the businessman, and Jack passionately hates Morgus yeah. because he blames Morgus on the fact he's, he blames Morgus for the fact he's disfigured and now has to wear this mask. And so he doesn't, but yet he doesn't know that Morgus is the ultimate source of these weapons. Yeah. And so again, that's like these circles within circles, which is, which was what makes the writing of this clever and complex, but clever. Uh, mm -hmm. here. Um, so the, the doctor and uh, Perry are quote unquote executed. Um, but of course, uh, I, I don't know if you, you, I don't know if everybody else figured it out at the same time, but you know, it was to me, it was apparent that they were not the doctor and Perry, but were androids of some type, uh, constructed yeah, perfectly, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, really quickly. So this is the cliffhanger for the first episode where uh, the government forces have apparently the doctor and Perry executed. And I thought it was a well done scene. And and then in the beginning of the second episode, we find out, oh, it was androids. And yeah. I thought that was a neat solution to because uh, normally when you have uh, when you have a cliffhanger, it's just before the fatal moment. Mm -hmm. And right. you don't get to see the fatal moment. And then somehow they find a way around that. But and so this was much this was more dramatic. And how are they getting out of it when they've apparently been killed? And then, oh, OK, so it's androids. That makes sense. Uh, but it is a little implausible that Jack made androids really quickly. <laughs> exactly. Um, a, a couple of notes on, on things that have happened in this at the end of that episode, I, uh, I wanted to note that the, uh, Morgus trial, the most, uh, the, the wealthiest man on the planet has the world's slowest elevator door. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I'm like, he's just, they're kind of standing there and it's going Ten up slowly, were... slowly, slowly. Yeah. I'm like when the president eventually gets shoved down there, I'm like, like, well, he, I mean, he's standing there so long. Of course he probably would have looked down and go, where's the floor. I mean, but uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
there was an interesting by, moment. By the way, that's yeah. a, that, in case we don't come back to it, that is awesome where you have internal defenestration for the president <laughs> of Androzani Major and he gets tossed down this elevator shaft yeah. and we get the we get the point of view shot of him falling down it and it's all computer generated, but it looks it looks really cool and I it it really nicely illustrates Morgus's, you know, Machiavellian nature is he's got the president of the planet here. And he has the chutzpah to shove him down an elevator shaft and then talk about what a tragedy it is to his assistant. Well, he's and he's so uh, phlegmatic about it, like just like it's no big mm-hmm. deal that I've just killed the president uh, of the of the planet. And and, and I'm and, oh, by on. the way, kill kill the elevator maintainer guy. <laughs> right. Elevator, elevator maintain, yeah. maintenance guy. Kill him, too. This should be a, a big finish audio production just for that guy. The, the elevator maintenance engineer <laughs> being hunted down by uh, Morgus Chow's people. Uh, Agents of Morgus. <laughs> so, Morgus is a great name, by the way, for a villain. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's got that um, Mor- uh, Morgan Le Fay. Morg is a sinister. Yeah. yeah. And also just the word morgue, you know, place where they have dead people that, that yep. with the Latinate ending us on the end of it. That's right. That's right. Um, th- there is another like a little beat in here where where we get this uh this this um conversation between the president and Morgus Trow. Uh, the conglomerate is closing plants in the West, which is unemploying many. Um, and so Morgus Trow says, "Well, ship them off to the labor camps in the East." To uh, which the president notes are plants that the that the conglomerate have opened up there. So that you know you're unempl- you're you're closing the plants here and and opening up plants in the uh, east, uh, so that you can get free labor instead of having to pay them. Um, it sounds like mm-hmm. uh, a commentary on the trade imbalance controversies of the eighties, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. just as much as this this underground war. It sounds a lot like the a commentary on the proxy wars, the Cold War proxy wars of the eighties. So it's very interesting yeah. how much uh, of its time. Uh, the commentary can be in the in 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 Doctor Who episodes. You can almost tell when an episode occurs in in its time. Yeah. Uh, but that's natural because that's what science fiction does: is it it comments on uh, mm-hmm. on our on our human condition in the time that we're watching it or or, or it's produced, um, but taking it out of its context in order to highlight it. So. Yeah, but per Mark Twain's rule, fiction should never preach overtly, just covertly. Right, mm-hmm. and this does a pretty good uh, 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 version of that uh, here. Yeah, what I like, I see. I don't have a problem with, um, uh, you know, I come from a from a society that runs on capitalism, and capitalism has, uh, even though it has flaws like any system, it has nevertheless lifted vastly more people out of poverty than any other system in world history and has been extraordinarily successful by that measure. But it has people who abuse it. I mean, even Adam Smith talked about how you never get two capitalists together talking to each other before it turns into a plot against the public. Right. And so (laughs) so I don't have any problem at all showing evil capitalists on screen because there are such things as evil capitalists. What I don't like is when you then get preachy about the system and give me a caricatured version of the system instead of just showing, well, here's a dramatic situation and I can make my own inferences about how common this is or whether it's balanced by other things. You know, one of the big complaints against things like uh Christian fiction is that at some point they can't resist throwing in a sermon. Yeah. Right? yeah. Cannot resist. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's just, we see that a lot more on it, things like new who 
It's just yeah, they can't it, seem to resist throwing in a sermon. And it drags down the art. It's sermonizing. It's not art at right. that point. We'll see how uh, uh, Chris Chibnall uh, handles that differently from uh, from his predecessors. Uh, if that if that becomes if it, if it, if if they if they move away from that sort of preachiness. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. So um, Jack has uh, the doctor and Perry in his uh, clutches. He tells them that they're going to stay with him forever. Uh, mentions that uh, that he's, that uh, the Spetrox. Uh, we'll keep Perry young uh, f- uh, forever indefinitely. Uh, then we have uh, the two gunrunners, Stotts and uh, Krelper. Um, they have this conflict over getting paid and sticking around. I love their names, by the way. They just sound, you know, Stotts, and who they call Stotsy frequently, and <laughs> yes. Krelper. I mean, those are great. Yep. And Morgus. These, this episode has great. Even Shara's Jack. The, all yeah, these yep. names are great. Yes, the, the Stotts and Krelper. They sound like, um, like, like they're very Germanic. They sound like a like like. Yeah, German soldiers. Um, then we meet the real Major Salatine, who uh, it turns out is Jack's prisoner, and that reveals to us that the Major Salatine uh, with General Chelak is, uh, in fact, an android. He's Ch- uh, Jack's man on the inside, who's revealing all the secrets and thus keeping the war going. Um, Salatine tells the Doctor and Perry about the Spectrux poisoning. Tells them it's first. He tells them it's incurable, but then it's, later on he reveals it's not actually incurable if you can get the antidote. So there's a little bit of a of a little misdirection there. Um, we get an explanation from Jack how he ended up in the mask from a a mud burst um, uh, when he was given faulty detection equipment by uh, Morgus Trow. Um, then we have this meeting between Jack. Uh, and Stotts and Krelper. Um, he's mad that they didn't deliver the guns. They're mad that he's not paying them. They agree to a smaller payment. Uh, and then, by the way, the gu- the gun runners themselves are I mean, just to show you the level of of kind of human chaos in all of this. Yep. The gun runners themselves are half the time at each other's throats. Right. I mean, uh, Krelper is insubordinate to Stotzi, and Stotzi like has to slap him down and physically threaten him multiple times, and so you've just got all kinds of you know nastiness going on. And that's the thing is it's, it's complex. There's there's le- there's there's many different little stories going on here, and it's and keeping it all together mm-hmm. is is quite a task. And, qu- and it, it, I have to say they do actually a pretty good job of keeping all the threads uh, in hand and not not losing track of them. Uh, I don't think we end up with any loose ends in the in this episode, which is yeah. Oh, remarkable. And, and spoiler by the way, uh, Stotzi eventually does kill Krelper. Right, and he pays off. He pays off his threats, and just <laughs> even though he doesn't have to kill him, he does it gratuitously at the end. Yep. Right, he kills off all the other gun runners. Uh, so uh, Stotzi comes up with the the plan to steal all of Jack's uh, Spectrox by following him uh, to the to, to wherever he's storing it. Um, and, and that's kind of clever because what what happens is Jack has agreed to give them two kilos of Spectrox and Stotzi says, you better have it for me fast. And he says 20 minutes. And from that, Stotz deduces the supply of Spectrox must be within 10 minutes of where they are right. in the caves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was good. That was good. Well, and, and, you know, Krelper kind of plays the, the dumb, you know, grunt of, well, now what are we going to do about it? It's like. Hello, it's 10 minutes away. It's not, you know, we can find this stuff. We can go get it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh so meanwhile the doctor has uh reprogrammed an android guard uh and they escape. 
Perry and the Doctor and Salatine. But then they encounter another android who shoots and uh, the Doctor and the Doctor ends up unconscious. Uh, and Salatine courageously uses Perry as a human shield uh, and, es- <laughs> and continues to escape. Um, and- well, I think the reason he does that is the doctor has given her one of the belt buckles that will tell the androids don't harm this person. Right. right. And so I think so. That's why uh, that happens. Um, but it does look I mean, it, they don't explain it. And it goes by really. What is this guy courageously grabbing this woman and using her <laughs> as a shield for? What I do like about this scene, though, is, you know, they're in this cave. You have this backlit android that's shooting at them mm-hmm. with bullets. And, you know, we have bullets being used in all of these episodes. Mm-hmm. It's not laser blasts. And um, and then uh, Salatine, another great name, is shooting back. And the android, like, its head comes off and it bursts into flame. And you have this silhouetted thing in the darkness. And it's just visually neat. Yeah. And having this burning android in the darkness is really cool. Uh, so they... Uh... Meanwhile, the doctor awakes and finds uh, Stotts and Krelper are, are are sneaking through the same area, and they encounter the magma beast, which we've seen we saw earlier on, um, but uh, yeah. we see here it's a kind of giant dragon dog rubber of, monster. It's very much a rubber monster. It's <laughs> got a, it's very much got a, a Godzilla, bad Godzilla movie feel to it. But uh, this is this is where the budgets uh, and the the technology of the eighties shows itself um mm-hmm. but uh it's not the worst giant dog monster we've had right right uh and coming up next week we'll see another uh, very interesting rubber monster uh set of rubber mm-hmm. monsters um so perry and salatine uh they get make it back to the uh, federal army base where they reveal to chelak what's happening and they come up with this great plan to use the android salatine to fake out jack they're like we're not going to just yeah. destroy the, the 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 android we're gonna use him to 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 fake him out He's still not realizing that jack has more than one way to get his information he's also monitoring their communications um so again wheels within wheels uh, uh sort of uh, uh plotting in this episode uh the doctor is recaptured sadly uh and gives him to stots to take to androzani major to question him to see because he thinks he might be a government spy which is an interesting element because this is what causes morgus's downfall because morgus thinks the doctor might actually be a spy for the president and morgus with a guilty conscience thinks that uh, he, the, the president is onto him and that's why he ends up killing the president and going to uh androzani major him uh, minor himself uh, right and um he so and he has a speech where he talks about how he he's so plugged into the network of everybody over on androzani major that nobody but the president could have a spy over there or he would know about it. So that's mm. how he deduces it must be the president if the doctor is his spy. And so he ends up assassinating the president. Right. Uh, so the do- also, by the way, it's yeah. important to note both because of, it's kind of easy to lose this. They bring it up periodically in the show, but um, both the doctor and Perry because of their exposure to the raw spectrox are now in the process of dying. Yes. Yep. And so um, the doctor is very concerned about getting uh, the antidote from the milk of this cave bat um, for the, that has spectrox in its nests. I don't know if we explain that, but yeah. the spectrox comes from the nests of this underground bat. 
And so you, if you get the bat's milk, it's part of the same biological ecosystem and it'll cure Spectrox poisoning. Um, so he's really concerned about to get that to save his and Perry's lives. But now they're carting him off to Androzani Major as he's in the process of dying. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm uh, disappointed we never got a scene of the doctor actually milking the bat for its. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of glad, you know. Kinda, they, they hint at it, but that's about as far as it goes. That, yes, that's just that would be a little too much, I think, for me. Um, meanwhile, uh, Jack recaptures Perry. Uh, while the doctor is uh, has been taken to Stotz's ship, um, there's a everyone's getting like like they're just being passed around, captured by different people uh, over and over again. Um, Better than running around. Yes, it is. Uh, the doctor, uh, you know, escapes. Uh, Stotz leaves the doctor alone. If if anybody who ever captures the doctor knows should know, don't leave the doctor alone because he's going to escape. Uh, and so he yeah. does escape, uh, takes control of the ship, and and reprograms it to take it back to uh Andrzejani minor uh even as he's again succumbing to the effects of the of the toxemia yeah. and, and and i wanted to comment on this scene because it is perhaps my favorite certainly one of my favorite scenes in this whole story um he's on the spaceship they he's he's managed they had him shackled up i mean they had him chained to a wall and he was able to get unstuck from the wall. And then he uses kind of a laser beam to cut the chains so he can then take control of the ship. So it's a stepwise process. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just wave a sonic screwdriver. In fact, they destroyed the sonic screwdriver earlier in uh, Peter Davison's uh, tenure so that he wouldn't have quick ways out of situations. So he's got to physically get out of these chains and then take control of the ship point it back to Androzani Minor so we can go get the cave bat uh, milk. And as he's doing that, um, uh, Stotts realizes what's happening and starts to break in and they start cutting through the door. And he he says that line that we heard in the trailer, I'm going to murder you when I get in there. And he's telling the doctor, you know, to turn the ship around and stuff like that. And the doctor is totally... Uh, not doing this. He has this moment where his vision freaks out and he sees these vertical lines, mm-hmm. which we later see again when he actually regenerates. We see the same vertical yep. lines and then he fights it off. And this is the first time we've seen the doctor fight off a regeneration. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that multiple times in New Who, including most dramatically, it seems, in the Twice Upon a Time Christmas special that's coming up. Um, but this is the first time we've seen the Doctor fight off a regeneration. He's doing it, as he explains, because he's dying anyway, and he's he got Perry into this, and he owes it to her to save her, or to try to save her. And he tells... Um, he tells... Uh, uh, Stotts. that yeah. he better find something to hold on to because he's not he's he's kind of rusty at soft landings and in fact they're going to crash into Androzani Minor mm-hmm. cliffhanger which is what they then do is they <laughs> crash into the planet and this Peter Davidson's acting at this moment is just awesome he is so tense and so focused he's almost, and I just he's love almost, this almost maniacal i mean yeah it's it just this is going to happen regardless yeah. So uh so they do crash there uh they they survive of course. Um 
Meanwhile, Salatine is leading this attack on Jack's base and doesn't realize that these belt buckles that uh, protect them from the androids have been reprogrammed by Jack, who has found out their plan. And Salatine is is killed, uh, you know, tragically uh, in in this battle leading this leading this attack, which uh, uh, a, a heroic death for Salatine. Um, and now uh, one of the these mud bursts. Uh, uh, events is starts to happen because the the planets are, are in alignment um which at, very violent yeah and it ramps up the tension um uh, we, we've got um the the gun runners chasing the doctor across the surface of the planet uh, these gun runners are the worst shots ever <laughs> they could oh, stormtroopers. Come on, they're imperial stormtroopers. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was gonna say if if they if they're in a battle with the imperial stormtroopers, they'd all walk away unharmed. Uh, just <laughs> <laughs> so uh, nah, one of them might shoot themselves with their foot. Well, you know, that I might mean. be <laughs> be the only thing, only uh, casualty. Um, so they uh, the so uh, where would I leave off? So one of the things I wanted to, to kind of point out, and I think we've kind of cover this a little bit but just like i i was struck by at, at, at this point in the story like chelek is lying to salatine and to Mor morga uh morgus morgus is lying to jack and chelak jack is lying to the gun runners and morgus everybody is lying to everybody like like everybody yeah. like everybody is is nobody's telling the and truth the, to anyone the, doc the doctor is the only one telling the truth and no one believes him exactly. and he says that why i'm telling you the truth why won't people believe me <laughs> So, uh, so in the midst of this mud burst of uh, uh, a uh, uh, swarm of of mud bursts, uh, Chelak and the uh, remaining soldiers they kill the androids and they push into Jack's base, uh, where Chelak you know starts fighting with Jack and pulls off his mask and is so horrified by what he sees that Jack is able to push him out the door into a mud burst and now Chelak is dead. Um, this is and and this is this is um, a, a makeup failure. Yes. Because he doesn't look that horrible. Right. Um, I mean, he's he's kind of got some yellow stuff on his face. It's kind of, I don't know, crinkly or something, <laughs> but it's not that horrible. Actually, I think this is a problem a little a little broader than that, um, because all of us today are so used to seeing alien things on on screens that it's very hard to come up with something that's genuinely horrifying, um, especially in a family viewing context. Right. Uh, I mean, when initially we don't initially when Zek, uh, when Jack's mask comes off, we don't see it uh, until the final episode when he rips it off in front of Morgus. But there's an earlier moment where it comes off and like Perry sees it and just shies away. <clears throat> and he, you know, covers up his face with his hands and it's a, it's we're meant to understand it's really really horrible. But I've seen so many alien monsters that it's mm -hmm. you know, I've you you I've I've seen Nazis' faces melt in front of the <laughs> right. Ark of the Covenant. It's really hard to come up with a visual of a face that's going to shock me in that way, in unless you really go really super gory, and they can't do that here. So right. it's kind of a letdown when we finally see Jack's face. In, in some ways, it would have been better if they just left it a mystery, you know, and le yeah. left it to your, our imagination. Um, the the uh, I was thinking of uh, I was watching the the most recent episode, the third. By the time this airs, it won't be the most recent, but uh, the third episode of Star Trek Discovery. 
um, and the, it's the new Star Trek series. And because it's on streaming, they can show things that they wouldn't be able to show in broadcast. And so there's a, a scene where people have been killed, but in su- mangled by an accident, essentially. And they show these mangled bodies. And I'm like, oh, that is new for Star Trek. Mm. <laughs> we won't yeah. see but uh, but see, I think it would be almost better. It's the it's the leave it to imagination. It might have might have worked better in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And fix the bondage mask, too. It's like do something else. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Yeah. Um, I, Andrew, Andrew, this this story, Caves of Androzani, is considered one of the best Doctor Who stories ever. It's been voted, you know, the best on different polls of fans. Mm-hmm. And um, and and I think it has tons going for it. But just the visual of that Jack mask, you know, makes it harder for me mm-hmm. to appreciate this series than if they had done something not so over the top. Right. Right. I mean, the writing is is great and the acting is great. But the uh, the uh, the some of the, the visual visuals, effects, which is, yeah. you know, a common complaint about 80s sci fi in, in, in many circles. So mm-hmm. um, it just wasn't there. Uh, so uh, the doctor arrives, convinces Jack to let him go get the poison antidote for Perry. Um, Morgus arrives on the planet, uh, realizes um, that Timmons, his assistant, has betrayed him, deposed him, stripped him of all his wealth. Uh, he's got, you know, he's getting his comeuppance, uh, which was great. Uh, yeah. The, the Timmons reminded me a little of a, of a young Judy Dench. Uh, hmm. I'm kind of curious who actually played that uh, role. Um, let's see if I can find let's it. See if I can. She does no. it really well. She's very cold. Barbara Kinghorn and... is the uh, actress. So that's uh, hmm. some, somebody okay. else. But uh, uh, so we, um, Morgus and Stotts, they kill the other gun runners and then go off to kill Jack, uh, take his Spetrox and split it between them. Um, when they encounter Morgus, Jack strangles Morgus, Stotts shoots Jack, and then the alloy, uh, the alloy android Salatine kills Stotts. So we that's how we resolve that situation. And this is and this is very dramatic how they do this. I mean, when Morgus is being strangled, his head is forced into an energy beam. Yeah. And, you know, he's been he's being bent over backwards into this. And they never explain what the machine is, but it's some kind of machine that generates an energy beam and they get his head into it. And that's what kills him. And and this is part of this whole very violent, you know, episode. This is not like Star Trek Voyager where the climax is people standing over consoles talking dramatically. Right. You know, I mean, you have you have bullets and people's heads in energy beams and mud explosions and Peter Davison running around trying to survive. And it's yeah. a very uh, physically demanding uh, and hard fought ending, which is the kind of ending I like. I don't yeah. like magical solution endings. Right. I, if there's if there's going to be a victory, uh, you know, it needs to be worth it in terms of the action we see to pay it off. And this is a very non-talky, very action oriented ending to the whole thing. That's one thing I had forgotten about this episode, uh, the serial about how violent it really was, you know. How how much ammo was expended in the process of this episode? You know, because um, it, it, that's not typical for Doctor Who at that time to have this kind of actual violence. You yeah, know, there might be There's action, a- but not this kind of actual violence like there is in this episode. 
Well, this there's there's an an earlier episode, and one of the things that Peter Davison's doctor was at times critiqued for was the level of violence. Uh, it's not a lot, and certainly not by modern standards. Mm. But there are moments uh, in particular episodes that are famous for being violent. One of them in um, the episode Earthshock, they have, which is where Adric oh, dies, yes. and we'll talk about Adric in a little bit. Um, he was the first companion in a long time to die. And that's a Cyberman episode. And there's uh, a, a moment towards the climax of it where some Cybermen have gotten aboard the TARDIS and the doctor is having to fight them. And he has one of their blasters oh, right. and like puts it up to the chest of a Cyberman and fires the blaster repeatedly directly into the Cyberman's chest to kill it. Mm-hmm. And and it, and you hear the you know electronic wang 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 sound as he's doing that, and it's it's it, even though it's a sci-fi weapon, it's very it's very dramatic and and violent in terms of TV of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the era where we you know a team would expend hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition in an episode, <laughs> and no one would get hit. Uh, you know, this is exactly this was not worst shots ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, the doctor returns for Perry. He's gone. He's got the, uh, the milk of the, of the, uh, the, the bat for the Spectrox. Uh, he's been exposed to the, the environment with no oxygen, which is another interesting, um, uh, parallel to the most recent uh, season of Doctor Who, where, uh, the 12th doctor was saved his companion by going into an, uh, airless environment. Uh, for a period mm-hmm. of time and being injured um the and and we get a moment of despair on this is a, one of the things i like about peter davison's acting we get this moment of despair where he's physically incapacitated for a moment and he says just to the air he says sorry perry i can't make it and we have this you know he's he's at, in the midst of all this hard fought stuff he's despairing he's mm-hmm. not going to be able to save either him or his companion he thinks mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so he he get, but he is able to get back. He gathers her up as the base is being destroyed, um, and he's making his way back to the TARDIS. Um, and as he's trying to get the TARDIS door open, he spills half of the antidote. Uh, which, yeah, he had enough. He had for enough for both, both of them, of them uh, but spills half. And so inside the TARDIS, he gives the rest to Perry as he collapses. Um, and then we get this he- the scene of the Doctor regenerating, which is a very interesting moment he regenerates while seeing all of his companions who are telling him to live uh while he also sees the master telling him to die doctor die um but we had but he has Mm -hmm. this sort of flashback which again it becomes an element that we'll see again in a in in the in regenerations of the doctor and before that uh companion moment and villain moment he has uh a line that's Shakespearean, really. He says, is this death? Right. And then to make it clear that he's not talking about the quote-unquote death that ordinarily precedes a regeneration, he says, I might regenerate. I don't know. Feels different this time. Yep. And so uh, he is, as a character, now we know as a show, we know as an audience, the show's going to go on. So he is going to regenerate. But he as a character is wondering, am I going to regenerate this time? I don't know. This feels this feels different than it has before. And then he has the companion hallucinations, which later become very prominent in New Who. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he, as he sees Adric's face go by, that's the fifth doctor's actual last word. He says, Adric. And, yep. and that shows just the one word shows the depth of feeling and the guilt he's carried around for allowing one of his companions to die. Because that's something that had not happened on the show in ages. There actually had been companions who died in the first Doctor's time, um, but they were very brief duration characters. They weren't as major as Adric. And and the show had changed such that when Adric died and the Doctor then, by the laws of the show and the laws of time, could not just go back and save him, um, he was really called on the carpet, particularly by Tegan, uh, for allowing Adric to die and then mm-hmm. not going back and saving him. And now we find out this has been eating at the doctor this whole time below the surface. And we saw a little of that when we did the Spirit Parts uh, Big Finish episode where uh, he was called on it by his uh, companion. Why am I blanking on By Nissa. Nissa, thank you. I just blanked on her name for some reason. Uh, but, you know, she there's just that one little comment where she says something like, you know, like Adric. And he just kind of, yeah, <laughs> you know, just yeah. you could tell that it was it was uh, affected him still. And it gives him especially uh, uh, that extra bit of motivation that he had uh, an explanation for why he was so intent on saving Perry at all costs. Yeah. Um, here. Point. So. So. um and that's it. That's how the episode ends. He, we see him. Uh, uh, we see, well, we see one little bit more where he uh, one little more generates yeah. into regenerates into the seventh Doctor, Colin Baker. Uh, they have a little um, uh, he, he dialogue, a little bit of dialogue, mm-hmm. and that's and, and that's that. Yeah, but it's important we talk about it. So, number one, this is the first time an incoming Doctor has had the last line of a show. Um, that's right. never happened before. It's always just mm-hmm. been we see the new face and that's it. Now we get a bit of dialogue to foreshadow what this doctor is going to be like. That becomes a recurring element in New Who. In fact, the tradition now is that when a when a showrunner is leaving the show and having a doctor regenerates, he leaves it to the new showrunner to la- to write the last scene with mm. the new doctor to set the tone for the new show. So we have some tone setting going on here with Colin Baker and wow, is it accurate and wow, is it a bad sign? <laughs> yeah, because exactly. the, the, the doctor, the new doctor sits up and um, and Perry looks at him and says, doctor. And <laughs> and, and and he he kind of arrogantly says, you were expecting someone else. And so that's you know, not a good sign. And then he, and then she starts to stutter and says, I, 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 and he says, that's three eyes in one breath makes you sound a very egotistical young woman. And he talks about, you know, uh, his, his, about this being change and not a moment too soon, thus dissing the entire run of Peter Davison. And so we have a very abrasive first scene from the new doctor and that's going to play an important part in our next regeneration story, which we'll talk about next time. Right. So, uh, so as we as we finish up with this episode, um, is there anything else we needed to say about this episode here? Um, any final thoughts? Uh, I think because we covered it. <laughs> so, because we do have uh, some uh, feedback that we got, some nice uh, audio feedback this time from uh, Matt from Ithaca. 
uh, who's commenting on our episode on uh, the Slovene. And uh, I wanted to play it here. Uh, he, he he sent a much longer feedback, about a little over five minutes, and that's a little a little too long for us to play in its entirety. It was, it was good stuff. It though. was good. Yeah. It was. Uh, so I edited it down to a, a to two minutes. Uh, but we may have uh, we may want to talk about some of the stuff he doesn't uh, we we don't get to play here uh, in our response. So let me play the his uh, his feedback, and then we can uh, give a give our response. Hello, gentlemen. This is Matt from Ithaca, New York. I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning, and I've really enjoyed it. But I've got to say, I'm one of those guys who thinks that you are way too hard on Aliens of London and World War III, a.k.a. the Slitheen episodes. I think you may have been letting your hatred of the Slitheen cloud your judgment of what otherwise is really a nice little story that has a lot going for it. Okay, of course it's a silly story, but I don't think that's such a bad thing. One of the reasons I'd pick Doctor Who any day over something like Battlestar Galactica is that it doesn't take itself too seriously. One of the things it does is for the new viewer, it introduces the third general type of story that Doctor Who usually offers. If you set aside Rose, which is really about meeting the character of the Doctor, then the next three stories introduce in succession the futuristic space-based sci-fi story, the historical or semi-historical story, and now this third type, the contemporary Earth alien invasion or base under siege type of story. For experienced viewers, there's the return of Unit, which are always nice to see. And there's also the fleshing out of Jackie and Mickey as real characters. And that's something that's pretty new to Who, the idea that companions' families aren't just backstory characters, but real people who will reappear throughout the series and give uh, consequences to the companions' choices to travel with the Doctor. Now, about the Slitheen themselves. They're actually fairly interesting characters. In fact, we learn a great deal more about the Slitheen over the course of these episodes and the follow-up story, Boomtown, than we do about many other Doctor Who monsters. Yes, the Slitheen costumes don't work all that well without a massive suspension of disbelief. But from what I've heard, most of what went wrong with this story probably has more to do with the director than anything else. You might have noticed certain similarities in tone, direction, and a certain awkwardness between these episodes and the first story, Rose. Well, th that makes perfect sense because they were directed by the same person and actually filmed together as the very first block of episodes shot for the new series. Just compare and contrast this story with Boomtown, which is going to come up in a few episodes from now, to see what a difference the writing and direction can make. So those are my thoughts. I quite like Aliens of London and World War III. It's certainly not the best story in Series 1, but like I said, I think it's got a lot going for it. Thank you, Matt. Uh, that was some good feedback, and I'm sorry I couldn't play the, the entirety of it uh, he did. Uh, yeah, there was one there was one great moment in, in there where he went inception on us <laughs> and he was talking about how uh, how this story could be perceived as childish. And then he used within his audio clip, he used an audio clip of Tom Baker talking about how life's not worthwhile if you can't be childish once in a while. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So uh, they, they make some uh, some interesting points um, uh, about the the role that the episode plays in introducing the doctor and uh introducing the the three basic kinds of stories that we get on doctor who um so i i get that yep he does although i think and he's right about those story types and he's right that that rose is really is primarily or in the first place it's about meeting the doctor but it also does show us an invasion of contemporary earth mm -hmm. right 
Uh, right. So it's so it's it's sort of redundant, a little bit redundant. Uh, I think he kind of makes our point for us in one respect, though, where he he spent some time talking about the flaws of the show from the director, like the the ways Correct. that the director. Yeah. So I mean, I I don't think that necessarily uh, undermines our argument of the flaws of the Celine episodes, and and I think we all agree that there were good elements to it. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, and, and one thing, one thing you mentioned, Harriet he, Jones, he mentioned, most notable. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we did, we we did point out a few happy things about it. You know, we talked about you know Mickey's character being you know starting to develop more. We did talk about Harriet Jones. Uh, one thing he mentioned, I think, I think you cut it out. Um, you know that this was probably the first episode actually filmed, or parts of this were the first scenes actually filmed. Right. And that right. And that that probably led to some of the weakness of the episode because they were trying to figure out the character. You know, we would, we'd like to think that they film these episodes in serial. So, you know, episode one is filmed first and episode two, episode three, but they really don't. And most modern TV shows don't, they do it by when they can get the actors, when they can get the locations, when they can do the parts, you know? So it, it's, they'll, they'll, they'll it's film. also, oh, sorry. go ahead. I was going to say they'll film episodes, kind of parts of episodes kind of throughout and, and it works in, to a finished episode after they film different chunks, different places. It's also common now not to have the first doctor introduction episode filmed first because they, the producers realize the doctor needs to, these days they realize right. the doctor needs to make a good impression on the audience and it takes actors a while to settle into the role. So they usually film a, a couple of episodes before they film the introduce the new doctor episode and then they air them out of order so that you get a more mature actor performance in Gee, that if introductory only, if episode. only they would have filmed that last scene of uh colin baker later instead yeah of right away <laughs> one of the things going back to that, what we just talked about <laughs> uh one of the things that um that uh our gentleman pointed out is um, that the in in the full version of his audio feedback, he he said, and I don't know if this is true, um, but he said it's reported at least that the director was the one who included some of the things that we found most objectionable in uh, both Rose and the Slovene stories, right. such as the moment where the comically bad stuff, right. Where yeah. like the the plastic garbage can eats Mickey in Rose, we hated that. Well, where and belches then, after at eating least, yeah. at least yeah. I did. Yeah, where belches, and then the the incessant fart jokes in mm -hmm. the Saladine episodes. According to our correspondent, there was like one or two of those just to establish the concept in the script. But then the director took it way over the top. Yeah. And then he points out this director was never asked back to do any more Doctor Who, which is which so is true. He, which is he, true. You he may be. Yeah, he may be right that the director was the one who messed up these episodes, but from my point of view, they're still messed up. Right. Also, yeah. <laughs> he he made the point about, you know, the the Slovene costume putting us off. And I agree. The costume is only one element, but it's a mm -hmm. it's an element we have to look at a lot. And it put me off the Slovene episodes the same way the Sherez Jack costume put me off a little bit of the right. Caves of Androzani. But what the Caves of Androzani had working for it was the awesome Bob Holmes script and right. the awesome acting and the other visuals that worked for me, whereas the Slovene monster green fat baby costume mm -hmm. just 
drug down the whole episode and, for me. It didn't have been, enough redeeming elements. And we've been talking about Classic Who, which is notorious for having horrible monster costumes. I mean, there are some monster costumes in the history of <laughs> Doctor Who that are that make the Slitheen look good. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's in 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 the uh, in the Nervous Station Weirin episode. I mean, the Weirin larva is a is a crewman wrapped in bubble wrap. Yeah, crawling yeah, around early, like a larva. Early seventies, there were a number of episodes where green bubble wrap played a role because bubble wrap was a new technology, so they used it everywhere. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, when we're talking about the quality of the writing of the uh, Slitheen episodes, let's not forget the that it had lines such as "Victory is naked" and others. So, I mean, yeah. I I get I there are there are elements of those episodes that are good. I'm not. I, 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 mm-hmm. uh, part of it is, I think, from from the perspective of our reaction. Part of it is, is when you get three people together and you and you start talking about the things you didn't like about a thing, it can kind of really build on itself, and yeah. it can mm-hmm. become it's a synergy. Yeah, it can be kind of fun to kind of uh, to, to to ramp that up a little bit. So maybe um, our negative reaction come, came across as a bit maybe maybe a lot, uh, you know, a bit much uh, than it deserved, and that might be, I, I'll I'll accept that criticism. I, I, I that it, that might be true. Um, it's it's also possible too that we're three three people in the world who didn't like this episode and there may be just as many if not more who did and uh, we just yeah. happen to be the ones and this i'm sure there's podcast. at least three the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I i have re- i've come to realize in my advanced age that there there are people who love everything and people who hate it. the same the very same thing you know the, that there all there are tastes uh that are for and against everything so uh, i and, I, you know, I accept that and, and it's perfectly valid and to be fair, there'll be episodes that we will like that, you know, our commentators will say that. No, how could you like that episode? That was the worst episode ever. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, there are, okay. I mean, even on this podcast, there are episodes that I've, I like that Jimmy didn't. And uh, you know, that I mm-hmm. didn't like that Jimmy does. I mean, or, or you father Corey. So it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, take gusto us. This, you know, this, this yep. everybody's got different taste. So, but thank you, Matt from Ithaca for sending that in. I yeah. we really appreciate it. Yeah. We, we love, we love feedback. We love audio feedback. Um, if I, you know, I, I love the, that you uh, the 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 uh, the breadth of the of the of the the feedback that you gave Matt, um, just we it was good stuff. Yeah, just uh, five minutes is a little long. So if we if you can be two minutes, uh, that would be great. Um, just try to get you know uh, feedback in in two minutes, but um, we really do appreciate it. So uh, I think that's it from us, unless there's anything else. So so what did again? What did you think of the Sixth Doctor regeneration story, the Caves of Androzani, uh, or if you want to call it the Blowholes of Androzani? Uh, <laughs> let be like yeah. be like Matt and let us know. Uh, visit uh, by visiting tridio.com, t r i d e o dot com, or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Uh, leave us some feedback there. Send us an email to Doctor Who at sqpn.com send us some audio feedback you can even just record it on your uh, smartphone using the voice memo function and then email it to us like that Uh, you can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes uh, on tridio.com and we'll be back next week when we'll be discussing the seventh doctor's regeneration story sort of time and the ronnie Uh, until then jimmy aiken thank you for joining us and sharing the secrets of doctor who Thanks, Dom. Uh, Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Well, glad to be here, and thank you, Dom. Well, you're welcome. And once again, uh, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, three eyes and one breath make you sound rather egotistical. Mm-hmm.
Pamela, see you again. Ah, uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.